Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode 84. The crew is here in attendance. Chaz is always accompanied by Seth. Seth, what's going on? Not much. How you doing, Chaz? Doing all right. Doing all right. Richard, how's it going? Hey, guys. What's going on? What's going on? So on the docket for today, we have a large amount of fish mail uh, to address I think it was almost record breaking, but I'm pretty. It was it was close. I think there was one time that we had like more than this, but it was still a lot. So we'll try to get through them as quickly and promptly as we can, uh, and try to answer the questions as best we can. But before we get to that, there was a large GP weekend, and we wanted to discuss that and just a little bit of rotation stuff because we we're starting to get some Kaladesh stuff. We got introduced to a new planeswalker. We are going through the story of Kaladesh, and then later on this week, we get Kaladesh spoilers from PAX. So Trick on Twitter kind of highlighted the next few days. Uh, so Wednesday will be fall announcements. So like like last time, we'll, they will highlight a bunch of stuff coming down the pipeline over the next six months or so. And then Friday is PAX West. So make sure to keep an eye on all the social outlets for that. I guess let's just d- d- uh, dive right in here. GP... Weekend. Uh, I guess just overall thoughts. Seth? Yeah, I kept up on the American GP for the most part in Indianapolis. And got to give Channel Fireball, again, props for coverage. They've really stepped up their game lately. And not just because they had sweet graphics, but uh, because they're just doing it right with the time-shifted matches and cool segments in between rounds. So the coverage was awesome. The GP itself... Eh, I mean, kind of the way modern has been. There wasn't too many things that really stuck out, like, oh my god, I can't believe that this is happening or this deck is seeing play. There were some things like Below the Radar that were cool, kind of the return of the Amulet Bloom deck with uh, without Summer Bloom. Uh, we saw a Spirits deck perform well, Blood Moon and Jund, but none of those decks really made it in the top eight. The top eight was pretty much what we're used to for the most part. Fair enough. Richard? Modern looks like modern. Of the three GPs, we had Naya Burn, Infect, and Grixis Delver winning the tournament. And like Seth said, it's basically all of the decks we've come to know and love in modern, and they're all just there. So it looks like modern's pretty balanced, and uh, the random rogue brew and you know random innovation like Blood Moon and Jund for some reason uh, <laughs> are showing up in decks, but it looks like modern and it's it's not as interesting without the shakeups. It's kind of just chugging along and it's fun to play, but when you watch it, it's it's the same decks over and over again. So that's uh, I mean, an I interesting outcome fun. from where we were last year, where we were all complaining about shakeups rooting the format. <laughs> yeah, I think. There's some strong archetypes. I mean, you still get Affinity, Infect. You saw a little bit of Dredge. I think you're going to see those decks kind of rotate like when people aren't packing a lot of Affinity. Then you might Dredge like might be a little better and then vice versa. But I think, I mean, I really kind of like, I love Modern looking at these kind of results. Yeah, it's kind of the same old, but I think the format's pretty diverse. It's wide open. Uh, like you said, Seth, there's some new interesting decks that barely miss the top eight or they're, you know, within the top, you know, reported decks. So that's always nice to see. Yep, Amulet Bloom players, <laughs> they dusted them off and don't don't want to get rid of them too quickly. Uh, really innovative without Summer Bloom. And again, I, I think it's just great. I, I love these, these Zooicide or whatever we're calling this, Death Shadow Zoo lists are, are really interesting i don't know if they're i guess they're fair enough i don't know lsv posted a, a poll so i don't know if death shadow is a really a fair card but i i just i kind of like this leo uh gang zuo uh i guess i'm butchering that and indianapolis still fairly diverse i mean and i love calvin chu's list uh night the nightfall list was awesome to watch uh... so 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 here's the thing. It is diverse. There's not really any doubt about that. Frank Karsten's posted this like combined metagame breakdown and nothing's yep. above 10%. There in that sense it is diverse, but if you take a more meta look at the format, 
you're still missing a pillar. You got aggro, you got uh, in various levels of fair and unfairness, you got like the combo e aggro, infect axe and burned axe, you got tribal aggro, like affinity and zoo, or maybe not even tribal, but creature aggro. Then you have the mid range slash combo decks, some of the Malira decks and Jund. And then you have the just straight-up unfair decks like Dredge and Ad Nauseum, but Control still really isn't doing that well in the format. Like, if you broke down by uh, more like archetype, I guess, than the specific deck and took a more meta perspective, Control is a tiny, tiny fraction of the format behind various unfair decks, aggro decks, and mid-range decks. So that's the part that's kind of disappointing to me. Apparently, Ancestral Visions just wasn't enough to really push blue slash control decks into the top tier of the format. Well, Fair just enough. a month ago, Jess Guy Nahiri was the boogeyman, right? And everyone's like, right. oh my god, this this car is so overpowered. And according to Frank Carson's list, it's about 5%, 4%. And then you have stuff like Bring the Light Scapeshift, basically a control deck. Uh, the old Scapeshift decks, uh, blue-white control. So control decks are there, but probably under 10% of the format if you combine them all, maybe 7-8%. So, you know, why 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 control when you can just play a 1 mana 13-13 death shadow and go to town, right? <laughs> right. I mean, I I still I understand like there there probably could still be a little bit more help for the traditional control list and in, in modern, but I mean, I don't really think there's anything to pick apart here. Like you said, I mean, even taking a meta perspective, there's still a good amount of representation for all the different archetypes. Probably, yeah. Uh, again, just to reiterate, control needs some help. But, I mean, Jund is pretty much a control list, and I would call that a pillar. Whoa, 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 whoa. You call it Jund a control deck? I mean, Child. what is it really doing? <laughs> it's a mid-range deck. <laughs> I mean, it come is a on. quintessential mid-range deck. With all the aggro out there right now, like I would consider it a control list right now. Your <laughs> best line is still turn one thought seize, turn two Tarmogoy. That's that's a it's a classic mid-range strategy. <laughs> I I think I, the, I think the problem for me is a lot of the decks they're different, but they kind of feel the same. Like they're all playing different cards, but if you look at how actual games play out with Infect and Burn and Affinity and Death Shadow Zoo, which together are like 30% of the format, they're all playing a really similar game where they're just dumping their hand over the first two or three turns, hoping to kill their opponent by turn four, and there's your game of magic. Like, yeah, the cards are different, but the way they play out uh, is just so similar that it doesn't necessarily feel as diverse to me as someone watching the format or playing the format as all these like five, six, seven, eight, nine percent decks would suggest. I think it's less diverse than it looks at first glance because a lot of those decks are playing a similar game just with different cards. I don't know. I disagree with that. If you look at Legacy, players play their cards in the first three turns and then someone's dead. Like, right. yeah, right? Like that, that's, that's what happens when your format is yep. full of high powered cards, right? But I think getting killed by Affinity is very different than getting killed by Infect. Like, when you sit down and play the match, even though both times you're dying on turn three, the way you play against the decks is pretty different. So in that regards, I think the decks are actually very different. Uh, where I think criticism can be had is this GP could have taken place six months ago and it would have looked the same. For, you know, as a player, it's great. You don't have to buy new decks. That's the whole appeal of Modern. But from a viewing experience... I'm like, I'm watching Jund play again. Yeah, now they have Blood Moons. Now they have Grim players. But it's still Jund. And that's good if you're a Spike trying to, like, learn the game and trying to maximize, you know, your your viewing of Jund. But as a casual watcher, it's like, ah, oh, it's 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 a Tarmogoyf killing stuff again. It's the same stuff. So right, I, but... I see the hard spot that Wizards is in between keeping the format dynamic but also not changing it so often such that it's basically standard. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a good, happy medium of where it is now. I mean, any almost any card game can get to that point, especially when it's, I guess, in a good spot. I mean, watch Hearthstone. How many control warriors are you going to watch after a while? How many, like, how many warlock zoo lists are you going to watch like after a while? It's like, it's all the same stuff. I mean, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So let me ask you this then. We've had a few months now, like more than half a year since... 
the banning of Splinter Twin. And we got through the Eldrazi dominance, which kind of made things hard to look at. But if you look at this format now, it is literally the same exact format as before they banned Twin. Same exact decks, minus the Eldrazi deck. But if you looked at the top 10 decks, uh, they're essentially exactly the same. So what was the point? Like, what did we get out of that? Like, Twin would just be another 9% deck that was competing with Affinity and Jund and Infect and Burn just like it always was. So why? I mean, I kind of agree with you. I would think it it could be a good candidate to come off again, especially if right now it's it's fairly diverse. You're absolutely right. I don't think it can be like a dominating percentage of, you know, the metagame. I think it would it would be one of those, you know, 7-8% deck lists that are strong, but they don't take over the format. I would like to see Twin back. I, I don't see a reason for it to be gone right now. Yeah, I think Wizards made a mistake. You know, their argument of, well, if you have this turn four uh, kill deck, you're going to limit all of these decks that want to play a longer game. So they remove Twin, but there happens to be another five, six decks in Modern that will kill you by turn four anyway. <laughs> right. You know, like, Affinity's been there since the beginning, right? In fact, has always been a thing. So these decks just take its place. You can't just sit around and journal. You need to either win the game or interact before turn four, which is basically the same game plan versus Splinter Twin. So, yeah, nothing happened. We were yeah, at the I, exact I guess, same spot. Guess, right, and I guess where I was going with John, not necessarily it's a control deck, but I love the deck's versatility that it can play so many different roles. So it's kind of almost, it's like, here's like a deck that you could consider a, a control list just because there's nothing else. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what well, other deck is doing what John's doing? The Nothing. fact that your three-color deck is playing Blood Moon oh, <laughs> is telling you how versatile <laughs> it is. Right. Exactly. I mean, I just... I mean, you, Seth, you made the comment there's no pillar of the format right now. I mean, I would still call it Jund. I mean, it do, it can do so many different things. It can play Control, play Midrange. Now with four... It's packing four Grim Flares. It can play the aggro game. So it's like... It's such a diverse... Like, it's such a versatile list. But that's exactly it. what we call mid-range decks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not super good at aggro and it's not super good at control. It's like right in the middle and you can tune it well, either I know. way. I mean, Whereas I know. control is just, just all-out control, right? Whereas we don't... You can't really do that in modern because there's just too many different things. You know, if you tune your deck list to beat affinity or let's say infect, then when someone plays a thought not here in a reality smasher, you die because you can't deal with it, right? Or if you want to play Wraths, then they play Malira combo and just combo you out. So the problem with control is there's just no good catch-alls right now, and it's it's too hard for the metagame, uh, with the diverse metagame, to build a control deck. So what are you guys' thoughts on Dredge? Kind of, it been the hot deck on the SCG circuit the last couple weeks, and it showed up. It's in the maybe 10th-ish place on the metagame breakdown, like 3 point something percent, but no top 8s, not even that many lists in like the top 32s, so is are people just figuring out to pack sideboard hate? Is it not as good as people thought? Do you have any thoughts on Dredge this weekend? No, the deck's still good, it's just people were actually prepared this time. That's why I think Affinity did so well. It's almost It's like kind of just like, if you don't have enough for Affinity, Affinity does well. If you don't have enough for Dredge, Dredge does well. It's like, I feel like since everyone was overcompensating for Dredge, that's why so many, I think there was like three Affinity lists out of the top eights that got in there. So my question would be then, is, because I agree with you that it has a lot to do with packing various sideboard hate, but is that a healthy format where, you choose for Leyline of the Dredge or for Stony Silence, and if you pick one way, Affinity wins the tournament. If you pick the other way, Dredge wins the tournament. Like, is that is that a good thing for Modern? I don't know necessarily a good thing, but I mean, I think that just goes to show there's it's still a lot of diversity. Like, you can't maybe maybe we go back to I think it was who was it Paulo's article about you need more sideboard cards i mean it's like <laughs> there's just so much to to try and game plan for going back to Seth's original point i think dredge is a good deck and the reason is not many people can dedicate four to six sideboard slots for graveyard hate and because of that you know you just well i'll lose you know i'll lose 
to 3.8% of the field. There's the other, you know, 96% of the field to play against. So I'm just not going to bother with graveyard hate. And then when you play the dredge player, you scoop and you go home. Uh, is that a healthy format? I don't know, right? Because the cards are so powerful, you need these dedicated cards. Like, how are you going to kill Affinity? You can't sit there and one-for-one one them. All their cards cost, like, basically nothing, right? You need those Shatter Storms. You need Ancient Grudges. You need those Sweepers to, to take care of them. And, you know, if you have those cards, then they do nothing against Banteldrazi, or you, they do nothing against Scapeshift, right? Or they don't help you when your opponent gains Infinite Life. You know, having more sideboard slots kind of alleviates it, but not really. I think what we really need is more card selection. I think Legacy and Vintage get around this by having Brainstorm. You know, having two sideboard cards uh, is a legitimate strategy because you can Brainstorm and ponder into them, and that gives you a better chance. So maybe just better card selection in Modern. And right. It's, I don't think it'd be too overpowered because you can't sit around and just dirtle because you're going to die on turn four to Affinity anyway. So you can't just spend the first three turns cantripping. So maybe that'll be balanced by all the fast decks. So maybe uh, just bring back Ponder. Yeah. <laughs> Give us Ponder. <laughs> I, I think that's a really good point about the difference between Modern and Legacy. I think the problem is, though, then you're kind of... And I run into this whenever I argue for making Force legal in Modern, which seems like... It would be great to stop all these unfair decks and help control, but then the unfair decks also get it, so it actually protects the combo. So you get Ponder back to find your answers, but then you're also giving, in fact, a much better cantrip to put together ways to protect from your answers and so forth. So I don't know. It's a weird balancing act. Yeah, it is kind of weird. But I mean, at the same time, Infect has that in Legacy, too. You know, like, Infect has access to all those cards as well. Uh, I, I think it's probably a net positive rather than Infect starting to try and jam four ponders into its list. Yeah, well, the problem is that everyone plays whatever color your card selection is blue, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, right. like everyone's balanced because everyone gets access to the same card selection except the colors that don't get that card, right. which is why non-blue decks are pretty rare in Legacy. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know if they're ever going to go that route in Modern because, I mean, look at how much diversity there is even outside of non-blue lists. Like... Just give us Ponder. Ponder's <laughs> all I ask. Just try it for a week. <laughs> Just accidentally accidentally put it on the Moto Beta. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> see how it goes and then say, oops, we screwed up. Just pull it off if it didn't look good. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, it, it'll be good testing. Oh, imagine if there was a hiccup like that with Ponder over the Blood Braid off. Oh, my God. It would be like <laughs> anarchy. <laughs> I actually oh don't God, think Ponder would be that me. good, though. It's just Ponder. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so innocuous. Just Ponder. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, oh, Modern's just so desperate for Candrib, so Like, Serum Visions is a good card in Modern, and it is a incredibly bad Candrib. So Ponder it's would be so such bad. a huge jump from where we're at now that I it's uh, I can't even describe how much better Ponder would be than Serum Visions. We should stop beating around the bush and just ban Grape Shot and empty the warrants and then give <laughs> us our cantrips back. That's... Oh, Storm has to be sacrificed. Yes, I mean, they're, they're, they're just slowly killing it all the time anyway. Like just, just cut it off at the head and then give us our cantrips back and let us play like real magic again. Oh, I, they'll find a way. They will, Richard. They will find a way. It'll be in the, in the incite memories, yeah. craziness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Finkel. Finkel will find a way to win with Storm, no matter how many Storm cards you ban. There, there could be no cards with the Storm mechanic in the format, and he would somehow Storm off. Well, that yeah, was basically exactly. uh, Seasons Past, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, essentially, yeah. Exactly, yeah. No, but it is. I, I do like. I, I I'm really happy with the results of all three of these GPs. I think Modern's in a really good spot, despite you know the little indiscrepancies. But uh, it was it was it was fun to watch, and I I hope some of these lists, these offbeat like the Thing Ascension list, Nightfall, uh, the Amulet Vigor, the Amulet of Vigor list that you highlighted, Seth. I hope these can continue on to be successful from here. And I mean, that's the good news. I know I was a, a little unhappy with how normal things look, but if you dig down below 
the top eight in the the really popular decks, there is still innovation going on. The the Bantfall list, the Spirits list, uh, the Dredge list. There was an Esper Bridge Control list that performed well. Humans, Storm, Bushwhacker Zoo. So there's there is a lot of stuff. And there was did you see the Escape Shift Aggro deck? That was one of the spiciest decks probably out of the whole weekend. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. It was really <laughs> insane. Yes. What, what Escape Shift Aggro? It is, it is playing Steplinks, Plated GOP, and <laughs> yeah. Knight of the Reliquary. <laughs> Along with Scapeship, Prismatic Omen, and the Valakut kill. <laughs> yeah. I'm very it's, confused. Yeah, <laughs> so you, exactly. you aggro them, and then you wait, yeah, you yeah. get the six lands, and you lose Val- yeah. <laughs> Valakut. Yeah, wait. Yeah, if if that plan doesn't work, you fall back on scape ship. <laughs> also, oh, my steplinks didn't kill you. All right, well, it's time to go combo mode. It's also got the full four boom bus, which is pretty sweet. With like Knight of the Reliquary and your fetch lands, right. you get the the free land kill. So it, it looks really weird and not very good, but it top sixty four to big GP, so it must be doing something right. So so there is still some cool stuff taking place just below the surface of the top list. So I think overall modern is in a healthy place. I just I just hate seeing so many burn slash in fact slash affinity decks being the best decks in the format. Really yeah. don't like aggro decks, do you? <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> it really format. doesn't. No, it <laughs> does like <laughs> I like to I like to dirtle and do cool things, and those decks are really good <laughs> at keeping you from doing either of those things. We'll make a new format where you're not allowed to attack before turn five. <laughs> <laughs> no attacking before turn five, okay? And no one plays the format. <laughs> I'm just going to start every list with four ghostly prisons. Now that they're cheaper from being reprinted in Conspiracy 2, I can do that for budget magic. So every every deck, four ghostly prisons, and we'll go forward from there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess there's a good segue point into, you know, getting out of modern. There's a lot of, uh, well, obvious hype coming from Kaladesh. We we get to see Kaladesh previews later on this week. So I think this is a good time to talk about just what you should be doing to try and prepare yourself uh, for that. I know we've hinted at and talked about it here and there over the last few casts you know over the last month or so even before that i mean we like to talk about it early as we can to try and give people a chance so we're going to be assuming that everyone is getting rid of the stuff that is going to be rotating here uh fairly quickly i mean it's going to be september there's not a lot of time i mean end of september is pre-release already so so you're getting rid of that and basically keeping battle for zendikar and shadows over innistrad stuff so more specifically I think if you're going to need cards out of Oath of the Gatewatch and uh, subsequently Eldritch Moon, so the two, two, the second set of both the blocks, especially Eldritch Moon because it was kind of sandwiched in between Eternal Masters and Conspiracy, it just kind of feels like you're going to need those cards very soon, and the time for that is going to be coming to a close very quickly because no one's going to be opening it anymore. Well, we should actually mention what's rotating out. Right. Which is so, Magic Origins and Dragons, yeah. which yeah. are, you know, your Origin Flipwalkers, your Dragon Lords, and Collected Company. <laughs> those are the important cards from those Pretty things. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Dramoka's Command. You language know, stuff like is a huge one as well. Um, I think if you're going to keep anything at that point, it's probably just like Jace Fringe Prodigy. And if I had a choice between getting rid of collected company i might as well just keep that too because they do have outside of standard appeal like specifically in modern so i might might as well just keep those my only concern with collected company is that supplemental product printing so the supply is like somewhat high i think you're still right but i have like a little catch and I'm kind of wondering like how that's going to play into things. I likely it'll maintain its value, but I think it'll slow its growth just because there's more copies in the market. So I wouldn't expect it to really increase super fast just because of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, we talked again, we talked about just specific cards. I, I, I personally like anything that you may need out of Oath of the gate watch and Eldritch moon. I mean, I have a couple of particular things in mind, but I want to hand it off to you first, Seth. Well, first off, this is going to be 
maybe I, we don't know Kaladesh yet, so we have no idea right. how much it's going to shake up the format. Is it high powered? Is it low powered? We just don't know yet. So that's that's the big caveat there. As far as what we have left, though. I don't expect very many decks to be crushed. Like, if you look at the decks, there's not really that many Magic Origins and Dragons cards that are key pieces to decks. Yes, you lose Languish. We'll see what kind of Wrath we get in Kaladesh. It'll determine whether, like, control decks trend towards black or towards white. If it's a white Wrath, that would change things. Uh, But really, I expect most of the the decks that are around right now to more or less be around at rotation, assuming there's nothing printed in Kaladesh that just crushes them. Uh, One of the cards I'm really on the lookout for is Tamiyo, actually, uh, with Collected Company. Interesting. Collected Company is leaving Bant. And the Bant cards are still absurdly good. Like, you can make a super good Bant deck. You have Tireless Tracker, Reflector Mage, Spell Queller, Sylvan Advocate. All that stuff is still there. So it seems pretty easy to be like, all right, I'll just slot in three or four Tamios where I used to, had collected com- used to have collected companies and just go to town right away with your Bant Company deck because you don't lose much else from it. I run the risk of sounding lame here, but, it, I mean, you're right. I mean, Bant, especially, like... All the all the colors that are doing well now, I can see them doing well a few weeks from now. I mean, barring some crazy cards in Kaladesh where we're not that we're not privy to yet, and you know, you look through some of the the cards that are pre-existing that we're assuming it has to do Kaladesh has to do something with artifacts, and there's just not that many good cards that directly like play off of that. I mean, you have like that two mana two two from Oath of the Gate Watch. I can't. I've, stone something outfitter, something oh, like that. Yeah, Stonehaven outfitter, I believe. Yeah, Stonehaven outfitter. So that's like kind of interesting. But I would just more be. I wouldn't even try to speculate on that. Like, oh, what could be good just specifically with artifacts? I'd just be grabbing the normal good stuff, like Tireless Tracker, and I mean Liliana. At this point, probably won't go down much further. It's like it's almost just like, like you said, Seth. I mean, Delirium is like a self-contained deck, and it's like. Still probably going to be pretty good, so, you know, I... Uh, Because a lot of those decks feel almost like pseudo-block-constructed decks. They're just not using that much. Like, the Humans deck is pretty much contained in Battle for Zendigar through Eldritch Moon. You're going to keep almost that entire deck minus, like, a random uh, Knight of the White Orchid from Magic Origins. So all of those decks, like, should still be around to a pretty great extent. The one thing I'm really curious about is the lands, because the biggest loss overall is the pain lands. They have that's going to have a major effect on the format. We don't know what the replacement is yet, obviously. But what do you think about picking up uh, the lands, either from most likely from Battle for Zendikar? I think they're the better cycle, uh, but also from Shadows over Innistrad. Yes, I I don't think they're going to increase dramatically but i mean yeah you're right at this point there's really no downside to grabbing them and i agree with you the battle for zendikar lands are probably the better ones to own and like i said yeah i mean they're even good outside of standard just to own for various other formats like edh or what have you i mean at this point you're going to need them for standard and while i don't see them like drastically spiking they're probably not going to be trending upward yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think they're going to be $10 or $15 or anything, but I think that they are likely in for an increase in play. But depending on what we get, if we get some absurd cycle in Kaladash that just trumps both of the cycles we already have, that would change things. Another thing that's worth keeping in mind is the Eldrazi. Is this uh, the end of Eldrazi in Standard? Like, Eldrazi have maintained decent value because they're popular in standard even after the banning in modern and they're still around right. in modern but losing the pain lands is a pretty big deal it's going to be hard to be like two or three color eldrazi without having the pain lands as tri lands to cast colored spells and colorless spells yeah i think that is kind of a loss to those archetypes now again we don't know what's in kaladesh maybe there's some sort of lands that produce colorless but I think there's still enough remaining. I mean, don't you have... I mean, if we're looking at specifically Eldrazi, 
Um, there's still like the con- uh, corrupted crossroads and like all those all those lands, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of colorless lands, but I think it's going to be hard to be like, oh, I'm a three color deck that's casting Thought Not Seer. You're right. gonna you're yeah. gonna be more like. Uh, mono red Eldrazi, or maybe the red blue Eldrazi, even though it sucks to lose uh, the dual land uh, Shivan Reef. Uh, but I think you're going to be restricted to playing those cards in much uh, fewer decks, unless there's a dual land cycle that also taps for colorless. Like if they reprint the filter lands, then everything can continue as normal. But unless, if we get just a true dual cycle that doesn't tap for colorless, I think that cards like Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher are kind of in for a downturn because it's really easy right now. You see like uh, mono white or Boros controlish decks that have four Thought Knots, four Reality Smashers as their sideboard plan. And I don't know if you can do that as easily once you lose those dual lands. Right, yeah. So the multiple color lists of those, like the Eldrazi-centered lists, are probably done. But, I mean, I still think like a mono-red, like you said, like a mono-red or, you know, what have you, mono-white, like Eldrazi list could probably still hang on. I, I mean, you do have lands that tap for colorless. And, I mean, you got that colorless Eldrazi deck that some people play, but there are plenty yeah. of lands that literally tap for colorless mana, but none of them give you the ability to really cast colored things as well. So yeah. I, I guess it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. And, of course, it all depends on... I'm sure there'll be a land cycle in Kaladesh. The question is, uh, what does that land cycle look like? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. So, I mean, other than that, I would just look at what's good currently because I don't see that not suddenly being good in a couple weeks. Like, obviously, Kaladesh could have an impact, but it's not going to be enough of an impact, I think, to move, like, Delirium out of its, you know, its place in standard. I don't, I don't think there's going to be enough strong, enough of a strong like self-contained decks out of Kaladesh to like muscle their like delirium or just straight up Bant or any of these other decks like out of their spots and standard. I think they're all going to still be very good lists. Yeah, I I agree with you. That's my take as well. I think this is going to be one of the less impactful rotations we've had in a while just because a lot of the rotating cards aren't heavily played. It's not like Esper Dragons right. is the best deck in the format anymore and it's losing all of its key cards. Like uh, the sets that are rotating have like a card here or there that sees play, but the majority of standard is made up from non-rotating cards and it takes a really dominant archetype to be able to be a tier one standard list from just one set. Like, I, right. we'll have to be waiting most likely for Ether Revolt to get two sets worth of Kaladesh for a lot of archetypes to really get enough to compete with the top decks in the format. Plus, a lot of the best decks are just three-color good stuff. Bant Company's essentially three-color good stuff. White Black Control is a good stuff deck. So it's... Uh, if there are good cards from Kaladesh in those colors, you can just slot them in. So one more, one more final point before we head on to to Fishmail. Are you excited because at this point with with Dragons and Magic Origins rotating, we will finally be in the full swing of the two set blocks. I'm personally see like excited to see how it affects not only just the format in general, like just standard, but how like prices move to kind of accommodate that. Like now that we're going to be fully into that swing. I am really curious about that as well. Like, I think it'll be great for Standard. I actually uh, was talking to Wedge from the Mana Source the other day, and we were talking a little bit about this. And uh, the rotation is awesome, I think, for players because things are always going to be fresh as far as gameplay is concerned. Uh, But it's going to be very interesting to see what this does financially. Like, I, I really have no clue... Uh, we talked about this a long time ago about how a lot of the old rules probably won't apply once we're in this new block cadence. And so far we've, 
haven't really been there. Yes, we've had two set blocks, but we haven't really got the full picture of what this is like. So the next year is going to give us a ton of information about uh, when things are going to start to decline, uh, when things are going to hit their peaks, and it's going to be very different than it always has been. So it's this fall and winter is going to be a really important time to keep track of that stuff if you are interested in the financial aspect of things. Yep. All right, Richard, let's move on to the fish mail. All right, we have a lot of fish mail this week, so let's try to get through them quickly. First up, at Harry Houdini, MTG, I pulled a foil Doretti. Uh, this is from Conspiracy 2. Sell slash trade now or wait to see if it will be in Legacy. I'll never play it. Currently, 52.25. If you're never going to play it, I, I don't see... If you look back like on the original Conspiracy... A lot of the foils will just start out high and kind of just stay there. Like some of them will continue to increase, but mostly they just kind of stay where they are and then just kind of very slowly over the next uh, conspiracy came out like two years ago. So have been slowly declining. So I don't see, I mean, Dak Faden was like right away. Everyone kind of knew it was going to be great. It might take some time for, people to figure out Doretti. Uh, so I think at that point, you might as well just hold on to it because it's not going to drastically drop off anytime soon. I don't have a lot of faith in the new conspiracy foils, really. The old ones were way more expensive than they should be, but I think this set's going to be opened a lot more, and I think that the foils are currently overpriced because the vendors who set the prices looked at original conspiracy and were like, well, we're going to make sure we, we cost these uh, pretty aggressively. And I expect to see them trend down much more than the original ones did because I think the hype and the amount of product open is going to be significantly higher than it was the first time around. Next from Gosu Gelber Sack. Hey, crew, can you talk about foil spreads and its implications? Larger spread means a turnable playable rate. When to buy? You really kind of have to identify what's an eternal playable card pretty quickly before, you know, the rest of the overall Magic community. Because, like, again, foils, we talked about this, Seth, of, you know, just foils in general. Those are going to be extremely high, all like just starting off and probably will never look back. Um, but when you talk about foil spreads, vendors don't really offer very aggressive buy lists in general on, on foils. So just because it has a high spread doesn't mean necessarily it's an eternal playable. I mean, a big spread uh, or actually multiplier, I'm assuming you're referring to the multiplier. Yeah. Uh, uh, like how much more a foil is than a non-foil. And uh, typically that's true if uh, cards that have a are worth way more in foil than non-foil are typically commander slash eternal playable. But it's not... 100% the case. So when you see a really big spread, it's worth investigating and kind of digging deeper. But I wouldn't use that as just a hard and fast rule of anything. Uh, like everything with MTG Finance, use it as something that uh, helps you realize you should investigate more and research something rather than like, oh, this has a huge spread, I'm going to buy it. So I think that's the right thing to do because it often means that, but not necessarily every time. All right, and our last foil conspiracy question. <laughs> Chris Keeler, open to foil Leovald and foil Inquisition of Kozilek. Should I sell trade or wait? <laughs> I'm biased on Leovald. I'd say hold it. I, I love that card. But uh, I, I could see that it's a tad bit overpriced right now. But again, I kind of have a little bit of a different opinion than Seth. I, I do understand it's going to be opened a lot. But just, like, foil conspiracy stuff, especially we haven't... Like, there weren't as many legitimate, like, EDH commanders in, in the original conspiracy. Like, if you look back, it's pretty much just, like, Muzio and... What was the other one? Yeah, Marches, Marchesa. So it's, it's really hard to gauge where those foils can end up. And if, if Leovold's even better than people realize and it really starts spawning a lot of archetypes and people love Leovold then yeah, I think the foils can stay pretty high. 
Uh, yeah, I'm still going to lean towards selling more so on Inquisition, which I think yeah, if, that's, people I want, agree with that. if people want premium versions of Inquisition, I think they're going to splurge and get ones that look better than the conspiracy ones. Um, cause I just think a lot of people dislike the art. Leovald, I can see an argument for holding just because there's a chance it's like one of the top five commanders. Like when we look back six months from now, like a lot of people are potentially going to be playing it, which would do good things for the foil price. All right. I lied. There's another, <laughs> there's another conspiracy question, but this one on the other side from at Cam Turner, I have a multiplayer cube. I want all the Conspiracy Monarchs and Draft Matters cards in foil. Buy in the first month or wait? These foils I think you can hold off on. Absolutely. I mean, if you look back at the other Conspiracies they and the, and the Draft Matters cards, the foils were really overpriced, kind of like they are now. But they, they dropped off drastically. I mean, I, I would wait on these specific uh, foils. Uh, I agree with Chaz. I would wait. There's just not that much demand. It's pretty much cubers like you. So a really large part of the people that are buying cards aren't especially interested in foil draft only cards. So I think you're fine waiting and the price will probably tick down as the sets opens. All right. Next question from at tasty snackies. Hey guys, I've been heavily inspired by all of you to make YouTube videos. Is there any advice you could give? Uh, yeah, I, I would say I think a couple of big things are just to do it, and even more importantly, do it consistently. I think uh, one of the best things that we've done with the Goldfish YouTube channel is have a set schedule. And even if you don't have a certain series on this day and a certain series on that day, try to keep a regular schedule so people get in the habit. Like, people will start tweeting and emailing me if monday night goes past and there's no budget magic like it's an hour late they're like where is it so you want to create this kind of normalcy when people uh, can expect your content to be out because it keeps them coming back and and watching it so uh, just keep doing it and be consistent i would try even if you're doing the same thing uh, and it's only once a week try to keep a regular schedule so people know when to expect more content from you all right from at Graylon W, what is the price point to buy into competitive standard on Moto? Not each deck, but mana base, multiple deck staples, etc. Um, it's not really that bad. I think you could buy uh, most of. You can buy decks for anywhere from like eighty dollars. I guess humans is like sixty dollars or tickets up to like two fifty ish for the most expensive. But I think if you're going to invest, oh, man, 400-ish dollars, maybe $500, you would have pretty much everything you needed. And if you're willing to wait on, like, Liliana is very expensive, certain cards like that, I think you could do it for even cheaper. The lands themselves are relatively inexpensive, and most of the non-mythic staples are much cheaper than in paper. So if you can get those and then just get the mythics you need for your specific deck, like Liliana, Gideon, stuff like that, I think that would be the way to go forward in probably probably a few hundred dollars if you did it that way. Yeah, we actually have some of this data on the site. So the average standard price is about 200 to 300 ticks. So depending on what your definition of having broad coverage is, probably about 2x a deck would get you enough. Uh, one of every mythic and rare that's standard legal would cost you 440 tickets right now. Uh, so a play set would be, you know, 1600, which would be basically every rare and mythic. So that's a maximum, but a lot of these cards aren't used. Uh, so my guess would be probably two to three standard decks uh, will give you enough coverage for the entire format. So probably around the 500 ticks mark would be my guess as well. And and one last thing, be aware as well that it's super easy to sell a deck and get a new one for little loss. So you don't necessarily have to own everything all at once because the spreads are so low, it's really easy to switch decks on Magic Online way easier than in paper. All right, next question from Devilbug. Do buy list spikes happen before price spikes? Looking at Beta Lightning Bolt, the buy list spike is happening before the price spike. 
And is that indicative of anything for this beta lightning bolt? Um, it, it's honestly not as common, but if you do see an aggressive buy list on certain cards, that could indicate um, a number of things, but that doesn't always mean a price spike is coming. I mean, it, if anything, a, pri- a, card spi- a card's price will spike, and then the buy list tries to catch up. If the vendors or if the, you know, these individual stores thinks it's, it's legitimate, if they ha- you know, there's a lot of supply for the card that they need to stock up on it. But I mean, it, it's hard to say that BIOS always, like th- it, there's not always, one doesn't always correlate to the other. Yeah, this kind of goes back to the idea of the spread. So I would, I would keep an eye on the spread more so than just the buy list price. And looking at the the lightning bolt there, the spread is thirty one percent ish, which isn't absurd. So if you see a situation where the buy list all of a sudden comes up to nearly equal the the selling price and you're getting that buy list price from more than just one vendor. And it's not that uh, card kingdom is out of stock. So they're paying a lot because they really need a specific card, but multiple vendors are showing similar prices. Then I would tend to think that the, the retail price would probably be rising too. But I think it's another one of those things where it asks you to investigate further more so than making an immediate decision based on how a buy list price is reacting. Kind of like the foil spread we were talking about earlier. One of those situations. Right, right. Next question from at Casey Metronome. Uh, the various competitive magic events are confusing to me. How can I start following competitive magic coverage? I, I think if you tune into specific, like, just streamers in general, like uh, Numot or whenever, like, LSV streams, I think that's a good, a good place to not only get LSVs, you know, commentary while he's doing something. Uh, that's another avenue you could take. Well, I think if, you're, if your goal is to watch actual tournament coverage, the basics are pretty simple. It's not as confusing as it looks. So most weekends, there's a SCG Open event that you can watch. Those feed into a quarterly SCG Invitational and then people who perform well over those events get to go to basically the Star City Games version of World Championships, the SCG Championships, I think. I don't remember the name. So that's kind of the steps of that. Then there's also another separate tour, which is held by Wizards, essentially, where you have GPs, which also take place on the weekend. So these are two separate events, the SCG and then the GPs. The GPs feed into the Pro Tours, which happen quarterly, and then the Pro Tours and all these other events feed into the World Championships that have once a year. So those are kind of the two main tournament scenes that are happening right now. Uh, So if you keep that in mind it's actually not too confusing the gps and opens are kind of the lower level events that are open to everyone then the pro tours and invitationals are the invite only events and then the worlds are only for a very small group and only happen once a year yeah if you head over to mtgcoverage.com uh, all the vods of the past events are there and they're posted after the uh the the weekend tournament ends so you can actually go in and then skip to the decks you want to see, or you can see what the event actually is before sitting down and committing you know, to the eight-hour stream. So you can skip around and use that site to do that as well. Uh, next question from at KG Baxter. Back to Conspiracy 2 foils. KG Baxter has a foil alternate art Kaya. Any idea what this is actually worth? Retailers have it at 120 but that seems high. Internet is all over the place on this card. I've never pulled any cards worth this much money. What should I do? How should I sell it? If you can get a hundred for it, I mean, I know I've heard some, you know, secondhand reports of people or vendors at GP Indie that were buying up the foil, like the the alternate art, is just the foil of the card uh, for a hundred. So I think if vendors were scooping them up for a hundred, I think you're in a pretty good spot if you can get rid of them for that. This is a tough one, too, because this kind of seems like one that can keep just because of the alternate foil. So I don't know if holding is, you know, maybe something to think about. 
because they're not going to decrease drastically anytime soon. Yeah, and it's it's not an alternate foil, even though everyone's calling it. It's yeah. actually the foil version right. of this card, and the art just happens to be different. Yep. But it, it's the same rarity as any other foil mythic. So do you think for people that like to pimp their decks, if is having alternate art on the foil going to make people more likely to buy the foil like i i really am not sure what to make of this situation does having alternate art increase demand somehow do either of you have any thoughts on that for people that are going to pimp their decks this is your only option like there's no different foil so you're going to get this so the question is for the regular person who wouldn't normally pimp their deck would having a different art kaya and foil be enough and given the price i don't think so yeah Right, like I, I think if you're willing to spend that much anyway, you're you're pretty dedicated to pimping your deck, and in, in which case it doesn't matter. But I don't know that you would pay this much extra just to have, you know, a little you know extra ghostly form on her. So I I don't think it really means much. It's just a cool little Easter egg or something they threw in there for us. So that's my opinion on it. Yeah, I think that's what I was thinking as well. When you have a ten dollar non foil and a hundred and twenty dollar foil. It's a pretty select group of players that's going to be willing to pay 10 or 12 times as much for a card. Not, most normal players that are building a commander deck aren't just aren't going to put out that amount of money. So I do think it's pretty safe to hold on to, though. This is a card that I don't expect to crash as much uh, as some of the other foils in the set. Because it does look cool, and it is pretty hyped, and I think it'll be very good in commander, even if it doesn't break into eternal formats. All right, next question is from Ethan. With the proposed new modern format, starting from the card frame M15 onwards, so I guess this is back to our discussion of the hypothetical modern format, okay. uh, basically new, new modern. Could this be the real reason that Wizards will no longer reprint modern staples in standard legal sets? No, absolutely not. This has nothing to do with that. Yeah, and we just made this up. Right, this is not something that Wizards <laughs> right. has officially said. This was something that we posed as a as a you know, something to get your your thoughts going. But, you know, this is in no way official. Nothing has ever been uttered about this. And I think the real reason Wizards doesn't want to reprint modern staples and standard is because they're too powerful. Yeah, and yeah, just going off what Richard said, that that's absolutely the reason. Like they they wrote a, a large article about this. They're just too powerful for standard they don't want to include these marquee modern cards like Thoughtseize uh, Inquisition of Kozilek like all those cards are just way too powerful for standard these days so so I agree with both of you except I think they think that they're too powerful I don't necessarily agree that with that and I've talked about that before but I think Wizards honestly believes that these cards are too powerful for standard whether or not that's true is a whole nother conversation well Well, they they were on the record saying that they tried Thoughtseize, and they did not like how it affected Standard. So this right. this is more than just their speculation. They've actually tried it with Thoughtseize, and then after the fact, they're like, ah, uh, this was a bad idea. Was it more than just Thoughtseize? I think it was, like, Mutavolt as well. Like, that also had, like, a really big impact on Standard. Well, apparently they didn't learn. <laughs> because I, the the yeah, most recent so. article was, I think, Morrow on Thoughtseize and how it warped Standard. Gotcha. I, they, they actually wrote a little postmortem on that. Mutavolt right. was actually before Thoughtseize, so... Yeah, um, it was a little bit before. But they, they, but they weren't Standard at the same time. But I would argue that it's not that modern staples are too powerful. It's that Thoughtseize and Mutavolt are too powerful, and they picked really bad cards to be their their test cases. What would be a weak modern staple? Like Tarmogoyf? Scapeshift? Yeah, Scapeshift is an example. Without Valica, that's pretty unplayable. Uh, I could envision uh, formats where Tarmogoyf would be acceptable. But the problem is you don't want to print these high-powered cards that do nothing. It's like, yeah, they could jam it Scapeshift, but if no one plays it, they just put it in for the sake of that, right? Right, they, and they, they talked about that too. They don't want to risk reprinting a card, you know, even if it does nothing at the cost of removing a card, essentially. But I mean, so the no, answer they... is bring back Ponder and then put it in a standard legal set. <laughs> just, just looking at the cards, though, like Scavenging Ooze, that wasn't too busted when it returned to standard. Yeah, it was. Stone, 
<laughs> it was a good card, but it wasn't format breaking. Kitchen Finks, that's just a good value creature. We had well, Kitchen Finks is so good. You can't oh, that 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 would warp the format. You, you know? really you really think these cards are too good in a world of thought not seers and the creatures we get these days? A little Kitchen Finks. No, but, but you need you need a good. clean answer to Finks. So you're gonna have to reprint Path or something at this point, right? I actually have Declaration in Stone. Yeah, maybe you can do it. Yeah, I don't know. So I think there are some cards, I guess, is my argument. And probably the biggest reason for this argument is if you look at the top 50 cards in Modern, like half of them are currently legal and Standard, and Standard seems to be doing all right. So Fair enough. I, I, still, I, I still go back to Scapeshift. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's literally like the safest card I could ever pull up out of Modern and be like, yeah, this is, that would be legitimately awful in Standard. Like you would have to not worry about that at all. Random ley lines and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Whatever. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, last question from Jeremy. In my opinion, Legacy is the most competitive, skill-intensive, and rewarding format. Why do you think the player base is so low compared to other formats? At first, I thought it was because of the reserve list, but looking at prices on Moto, they're not much more expensive than a modern deck. Maybe not on Moto, but <laughs> in paper, they certainly are. I think a lot of it has to do, maybe, again, you, you guys talk about uh, Moto Legacy as, you know, actually a pretty good, you know, way to get to play Legacy. But outside of that, I mean, I, literally, I think at this point, it's price barrier. I mean, not everyone is willing to 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 pay that kind of money. And I also, I think that's the biggest, by far, clearly in paper. As far as Magic Online, I think there's a real argument that although I love Legacy and think it's the most competitive skill, rewarding, intensive format, I agree with Jeremy, uh, not everyone enjoys getting Force of Willed and Blood Mooned and Dazed and Brainstorming, and it's a pretty complex and... Uh, punishing format. So I could imagine if you started playing Magic in the past year or two, even if you're on Magic Online, you just might not really get the appeal of buying a Legacy deck, even though it's comparable to buying a Modern deck, just because the playstyle is so different, and while it appeals to some people, uh, there's some people I don't think it appeals to. I think the, the bigger factor is how much of a spike you are. Most Magic players are much more casual, uh, Legacy is very spiky. You have to know the formats in and out. You fetch the wrong land, you die. And I'm going to say most <laughs> players are not that spiky, right? Like, it's for the hardcorest of hardcore spikes. You really want to play Magic as technically sound as possible. And I find that there's not a lot of those players. And typically, if you if you meet the really spiky players in your regions, they probably do play Legacy or have aspirations to play Legacy. That's what I found. Like, if you go to, like... PTQ grinders and stuff, the people that are always there, chances are they play Legacy. So I, I think it's just how spiky it is. And I think it, it has to do with what Seth said. You, it, it feels bad to get Force of Will, Blood Moon, Rashad Imported, whatever, right? So, you know, when you're sitting down after a hard day's work uh, and you, you want to just relax and play some magic, you don't want to just sit down, mull the six, get wastelanded, and just sit there with nothing, <laughs> right? So it, it's it's a much more competitive and different game. You know, it's very different than, you know, going infinite in EDH or, you know, just playing some dirtles and standard and attacking each other. It's it's a lot more intricate, and I think most players aren't looking for that, right? Yeah, kind of I, reason why a lot of people like Hearthstone. Just sit down, <laughs> yeah, slam yeah. some things, have a good time, and then, you know, you're done. I mean, if if you could compare training to be like a Tibetan monk to like learning how to successfully cast a brainstorm, I, I think like you know people shy away from the format. I mean, you there's just like so many different you know sub games going on in a game of Legacy. It's like exactly like you said, Richard. Like you crack your fetch, you get the wrong land, like you lose the game. Like it, even if you crack your fetch at like the wrong like the wrong sequencing it's just like it you lose like the games are literally you have to know exactly the sequencing like to a t like it's even worse how to that, right? yeah you crack your fetch you get stifled then you lose <laughs> yeah you, you, lose. <laughs> you don't even yeah. get to fetch the wrong land right it's like you did it at the right. wrong time you lose i i think the other thing that maybe hasn't been mentioned yet is there's not a lot of good entry points into Legacy. Like, I think with Modern, it's easy to, if you're like, I kind of want to check this format out, I don't know if I'm going to like it and keep playing it, there's ways you can build a deck for $100, $150, which is competitive enough 
for you to get a feeling of the format, that's really hard to do with Legacy. Like, if you're not willing to put out a decent amount of money, uh, you're not going to be able to compete with the broken stuff that's going on. So I think it's hard for people to kind of get their feet wet and test out the format, even if it pops into their head, like, oh, maybe I would like to try this crazy, spiky format. There's just not a good way for that to happen, necessarily. We always harp on this, but no coverage. The The reason right. I started playing Legacy was... I liked watching people try to play brainstorms in the standstills and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, you know, this is pretty cool. This is totally different from standard. But, you know, if you're a new player now, there's nowhere to watch Legacy. So you're never going to get that curiosity and you're never going to go explore this format. It's just, you know, hidden away somewhere. You don't even know it exists, right? Until we debate about reserve lists and then it comes up again and then you never hear about it. So just having it on coverage and watching people resolve really complex stacks or you know playing really weird cards that you never experienced before because uh they're part of the old mechanics that are no longer printed nowadays so you don't get to see that anymore all right that's all our fish meal for this week awesome yeah thanks everyone for sending those in those were really good um a lot to talk about next week again just uh announcement day on wednesday kawadesh previews on friday so you know keep keep track of that over the social outlets and uh, yeah, gentlemen, we will do this again next week. And this is going to be the MTG Goldfish Crew signing out.